Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. This episode, we will not be hearing the cicadas and crows and traffic sounds that we had to endure, both of us, all of us, last week when I recorded from Rotary Park on the banks of the Chattahoochee. Now, I'm not promising that I won't be doing that again, but I just wanted to say that this time I am sitting here at home in the relative quiet of the old farmhouse. So this will be a little easier on uh, people who have some sort of revulsion to uh, sounds of nature. (laughs) Anyway, Today's topic is going to be an introduction to um, home recording. And I've done an awful lot, some of it really awful, of home recording of, of a pretty broad spectrum. I mean, I've taken home recording just about as far as a person can, um, you know, even to the point of producing full multi-track um, CDs for, you know, the bands that I was playing in. And I've also just, you know, knocked out, um, rhythm tracks to go along with a video, or I've just, you know, carried a recorder to a jam session or recorded a gig. I mean, I've done a lot of things with recording, but on the low end, I mean, we're not talking about Grammy recordings here. We're not talking about, you know, booking a studio for, you know, what is it? I don't know, a thousand bucks a day or something. This is talking about home brewing your own recording tech. And that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. But before I get into that, I, I need to do a little bit of house cleaning here. The first thing I want to say is for those of you who listen every week, and expected a podcast to come out last week. Toward the end of the week, I got really, really busy. I had some opportunity to uh, do some serious amount of mowing, thanks to uh, breaks in the weather and repairing the mower. So I was mowing. And then also I had the, the jam on Thursday night, which I talked about in the last episode, we now have completed six weeks of that, and I'm not going to go into any any more about that right now. I may give you an update as things progress, but I will say this. We had a really good jam, largest turnout so far after six weeks, so maybe the moral of the story is don't give up too soon, because I think about week three, I was about to chuck the towel in, you know, but, um, you know, it's been fun. It's been, I think, maybe more fun for some other people than maybe me personally, but I'm not complaining. I am the idiot who started this thing. So anyway, not going to talk too much about that. I do want to get, make mention of two new Patreon patrons who are supporting this podcast that you are listening to. And so if you're listening and, you know, you're just enjoying it and having a good old time. You know, that's that's cool. But I want to especially thank Tom, Tom DeBomb. He is DeBomb because he signed up as a Patreon patron. And Drew, Drew, I'm loving you, Drew. Those are my two most recent Patreon patrons. And if you want to join that very exclusive club, and go into that virtual lounge and sip martinis and smoke cigars and tell off-color bluegrass jokes, you can do that with Tom and Drew and the rest of the crew. Man, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm turning into a rapper. Everything seems to be rhyming today for some reason. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird, and the rest will be instantly revealed to you. And there are some bonuses. Uh, you know, if you do that, you could sign up as a $2, you know, a $2 a month or something uh, patron and instantly have unlocked to you a 
free digital download of a Pony Express album. That would be one of the bands I played in for many years. An album called Messenger with Buddy Ashmore and Pony Express. And there's some classic stuff on there. If, if you know, if all I can say is if you've never heard the song, The Tattooed Lady, that alone is worth signing up for Patreon for uh, like even just one month and then download the album, you know, because we used to pedal those things when we first came out. We we pedal them for, God, I think 12 or 15 bucks, you know, back in the day. This uh, we produced this CD and sold it at live performances, uh, I think in 2004, I, I maybe maybe don't have the year absolutely correct you know you've been doing this as long as i have this it all starts running together after a while okay so anyway i'm not neglecting the other patrons and i thank you just as equally as i thank drew and tom it's just i don't have the list here in front of me and i'm not going to waste anybody's time in trying to look it up and read off everybody's name maybe i'll do that here again pretty soon but I do want to acknowledge Tom and Drew. All right. The other thing I want to say thank you, and then we're going to get into the meat of this. Um, I want to say thank you to anyone who has purchased any of my materials. You know, it's just oddball stuff comes through. Somebody bought the Dulcimer Instruction Course. Somebody bought the Bluegrass Bass Learning System. Somebody bought the... the um, mandolin learning system with master class training camp excursion it's just little stuff comes through but i don't know i can't determine when somebody purchases something whether they're doing it uh, because they just randomly googled you know mandolin how to improvise and they ended up over there or whether they are a, a dyed in the wool listener to the podcast and i you know i like to hope that they are or if if they're not that they will become one because this podcast as i've said many times is really just bonus additional material that could not possibly be charged for um, anyway if you have purchased something through my online store all the videos instructional material and pdf and all that all those things that i have put out there if you've done that, and if you've done it because, you know, you appreciate the podcast, thank you also. Okay, now let's get to the topic. The topic, and, and I may do this as a little series of multiple episodes. I want to begin by kind of just setting the stage for recording. Because everybody's got their own reasons for wanting to record and they change over time. When you're, you know, when you're starting out, you just kind of want to hear, you know, you want to play Cripple Creek into your iPhone and then play it back and listen to it and groan and like, Oh man, that was bad. You know, it's a way to analyze how you're playing. It's a way to be the other. It's a way to be the audience. So you record yourself and you play it back and now you're the audience and you can judge yourself and how you're doing. So there are reasons like that. There are, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons which I talked about in episode number 87. And I believe the title is Why We Record. If you haven't listened to that, you might want to listen to that first. Uh, just, you know. So you get an idea of why in the world do we even record things. And I put, I put a bunch of very strange recordings on there and gave some of the reasons why I recorded that particular thing. But what I want to do here is just kind of set the stage that, okay, you've got some reason to record some music. There are a lot of ways of doing that. You could uh, be practicing your thumb in and out roll on the banjo, and you could drive up to Nashville and book a high-dollar studio and have somebody record you um, and burn it on a CD or something and give it to you so that you can go back down to South Carolina and listen to yourself play that role. You could do that. You know, if you just won the lottery, I suppose you could do that. But that's probably not what you're going to do at that level. 
But let's say you got a band and you've been playing together four years and you've been gigging a bunch and you're thinking, now's the time we need to record. And maybe it's even sooner than that. Well, then you might start calling around, you know, looking through the Nashville yellow pages for a studio. And I'm not saying you have to do this in Nashville, but it's, you know, there are lots of places you could record there. There are a lot of places you, you could record all over the place. You go up to Virginia, you could go, in, you know, in Atlanta. You could, uh, you could have come to my basement when I was living in Rex, Georgia. Um, and people did. Let's begin with a little condensed history, very condensed. This is, this is like um, world history on the head of a pin, the history of recording. I mean, you think about it. If you went back to, say, Mozart's day or any time, any time way on back there, you know, the ancient Mesopotamians. I can't even say that. Mesopotamians. I probably still didn't say it right. Just go back to uh, the Neanderthal. He's playing a fine tune, banging his club against the um, hollow tree stump. Well, you're only going to hear it if he's performing it. Tomorrow, you just have the memory of it. And you're like, man, that was a, that was a, that was a really cool rhythm he was knocking out there. That old Og, Og, he's got a he's got a real way with the club. You just have to rely on memory. So that's the first recording technology is just your memory of it. But then, you know, along came all the inventors and came up with ways to capture these sound waves that ordinarily you would have to hear only live. You would have to go to the opera to hear opera. You couldn't go home and put your Edison cylinder on and lower the needle on and crank the spring and send that scratchy um, cylinder to spinning and have it vibrate a little diaphragm and no electricity at all. This is just clockwork and needles and scratching and stuff like that, but it would vibrate a little, a little, little, membrane at the bottom of a cone and you could point your ear towards it and go, man, that sounds just like Jimmy Rogers singing. My God, that sounds a little bit like Bill Monroe, you know, early, early recording technology was mechanical and analog. And I'll get to analog versus digital in a minute, but that was the first recording, you know, the, a cylinder. One time I was down in Jackson, Georgia. I was probably about a senior in high school, and me and a buddy of mine were riding around out in the countryside, and we were down by Jackson Lake, just riding around, and we found an old house, just an old fallen-down house right alongside the road, probably, I don't know what that highway was, 36 maybe goes down to Jackson. We're riding around. We find this old house. It's all covered over in kudzu. And we were poking around. We had our metal detectors. And we're poking around and stuff, looking around this old house. And in that house, over in the corner of one of the rooms, I found a box, like a wooden fruit crate. And in that box was a whole stack of, uh, looked like oatmeal boxes. But they were smaller than oatmeal boxes. Maybe not quite as tall and not as big around, but little cardboard things. And I, I pulled one out and had a cap on it, just like an oatmeal box, the cardboard oatmeal boxes. Pulled the end off and slid it out, and it was an Edison cylinder. An Edison cylinder record. Uh, this is a commercial record. was sold in a cylinder form. And there was a hole, like, you know, like a bushel like you'd buy a box full of apples, full of these things. And I looked through them because I was already, I already had the bluegrass bug and I was looking through, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if I found some old banjo picking on here or something. But it was all classical music and like Caruso and I don't remember who was on them. And foolishly, dumb me, I took one cylinder and I, picked it up and I carried it with me and I've since lost it. 
Um, but I could have walked out with a whole box. I mean, somebody else probably came along and yeah, he probably burned that old house down. And anyway, that was an Edison cylinder. It seems like it was about as big around as a drinking glass, you know, and about that size. But that's how they were done originally. You know, you remember in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You sing into the can. Well, the original can was just a mechanical system to take your voice, make a needle vibrate, and turn a cylinder, probably lacquer or wax or something, and transfer the vibrations of your voice or your instrument or whatever to a scratchy, you know, varying groove on some physical object, the cylinder. And then somebody figured out, hey, we could do this on a flat disc and thus became the record album the the 78s you know and then the 33s and the 45s and so on platters oops hit the mic there sorry um that you know you could spin a flat disc around in a circle and do the same thing just you know scratch the the audio wave into it and then when you played it back have you ever done this surely you've done this have you ever taken a piece of paper and rolled it up into a cone and put a little piece of tape on it and then fold the end of the cone down, the point of the cone, and stick a straight pin or a needle through it like a sewing needle and poke it through that cone and then go to your old, your old record player and pick out some record you do not care about and stick it on the turntable and let it start turning. But don't put the the arm on it, you know, don't play it with the regular needle. Just take that paper cone and gently lay that needle down into that groove and hold it. And you'll hear that record. That record will play right through that cone. That is analog. No electronics required. I mean, there is a motor turning it, but it could be a watch spring and a bunch of gears uh, turning the, you know, the, the platter itself. But you should do that. I mean, you shouldn't do it with the nice records that you care about because that needle is probably going to tear up that record pretty bad. I've done that with Jackson. You can actually make recordings that way. You can put some sort of substance on that, you know, like a piece of aluminum foil, get you a nice sheet of aluminum foil and spread it out real flat and put it on that turntable and let it start turning and drag that needle along it while you yell into the, into the cone. And it will cut a groove in that thing. And if you can find the groove again with the needle, if you can play it back, you might hear yourself going, hey, dad, or something. That that's, might be all you get out of it. But it's a fun little experiment. And that's how recording technology really, really started. And I suppose we could even back up and say, well, music notation is also a form of recording technology. Because we can't capture the waveform itself, but we can capture the notes and you know, write them down with a quill pen and dipping it in ink and or pencil or I don't even know if the pencil was invented. When when was the pencil invented? I don't know. Um, maybe maybe in the eighteen hundreds. I think you could use a uh, pen, a quill, and some ink and write down the notes and then find yourself a musician who can read the stuff and play it back. And that's sort of a form of of recording. Very, very primitive. Then along came, you know, electricity and electronics and the wire recorder came out and then tape recorders. Where the audio signal would go through a microphone and be converted to an electrical signal. And then the electrical signal would be somehow recorded onto some substance and the wire recorders you basically, the electrical signal energized a magnet and it created magnetic, you could say magnetic waveforms onto the wire as it was pulled past the magnet head. Tape improved this a little bit. They could use a, you know, a plastic or celluloid or I don't know what kind of substance for the tape and coat it with iron oxide and run that past the magnet and put the waveforms on there in varying magnetic um, um, 
you might say, images in the iron oxide coating. Just like every everybody has played with, uh, what's that old thing where you buy these at, at the roadside stands when you're on your way to Florida on vacation, and they've got this little cardboard thing, Wooly Willy or something like I forget what it's called, but it's got this guy's face, and he's just bald as a cue ball, and it's just head, bald head, ears, nose, mouth, eyes, and in the little plastic thing is a bunch of iron filings. And then there's a string with a magnet, tied to it and you can lift the magnet the iron filings and move them around and give him some eyebrows or give him a mustache or hair i forget what they i think it's called woolly willy i don't remember used to play with those things a lot and then you could just shake it and shake all that's what's going on as the tape moves past the magnetic head the magnet is rearranging the iron oxide molecules and you know, putting them in different orientation. And then on playback, a very sensitive um, circuit, let's say, can read those variations in the tape and amplify it sufficiently so that you can drive a loudspeaker and actually hear it back. That's basically what tape recorders do. Then there's digital. Digital we're living in the digital world. I don't know what the next world's going to be, but right now it's digital. Hardly anybody is recording anything on tape anymore. I, you know, I suppose it is still done. Um, some retro guys down in Muscle Shoals are probably still doing it. And uh, I want to state this for the record. Tape still works, and it works beautifully. All of the classic recordings, all of them. We're done on tape. So there's no reason you can't use tape too. And actually you can buy the equipment a lot cheaper. You got to learn how to do it. You know, you got to go back and you know, be a, a recording caveman, but tape still works. But we're living in the digital world. So today, and just a little quick overview of how digital works. When you're playing and singing, it's analog. And that means... I suppose I should say, what's the difference between analog and digital? Analog is a continuous waveform. Where digital are in discrete steps. Think of it like this. Like you see a big, long staircase, like the steps up to the Supreme Court. It's a bunch of steps. Step, 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 step. Or you could lay a ramp all the way up. Well, analog is the ramp, and the steps are digital. The way digital works is every so many millionths of a second, it takes a snapshot of the wave and measures it and records that as a number. Where analog is just a wave. It's just a flowing wave. So in the digital world, everything starts as analog. When you play your banjo, your fiddle, your dobro, or you sing, or whatever, you're creating analog waves in air. The microphone converts those analog waves into analog electrical signals. It's simply a transducer. It turns physical vibrations into electrical changes, changes in voltage, or perhaps changes in capacitance, depending upon type of microphone or changes in resistance but changes in an electrical signal but it's still analog there are still an infinite number of steps there are no steps it's a wave at the point of conversion to digital some sort of analyzing computer is looking at the wave and Every so, every so many moments in time, it measures the wave. And it builds a table of numbers. It takes a waveform and turns it into numbers. And I'm going to do this very crudely. Let's say at one second, your volume was 100. So it put down 100. At two seconds, your volume was 80. So it puts 80. And it at the three second mark, your volume was 50, so it puts 50. So it's got, 
Now it's got a table of 180 and 50 discrete steps where the real wave was just sort of this gooey sliding thing that went from 100 down to 50, you know, with infinitely small steps in it. And just as a general guideline, the faster the measuring of the AD converter, the analog to digital converter, the more realistic the, the digital waveform will be compared to the analog. You know, if you only take a sample every second or two, it's going to sound real stair-steppy. And in, in, in digital photography, you would think of these as pixels. The smaller your pixels, the smoother and more analog the photo looks. You know, very very low sample rate, you get a very crude pixelated picture. The same is true for audio. Because you have an infinite number of possible moments in time with a true audio wave. But when it's converted to digital, the faster you can sample it, the more accurately you can recreate it later when you do eventually turn it back to analog because nobody, nobody with all the digital recording that goes on, everything is digital today. Nobody listens to music digitally. You don't have a USB port, you know, at the base of your skull where you plug a cable in and you start hearing the music. <laughs> maybe they'll, maybe that'll come. God help us if it does. But at some point, even if it's your set of earbuds or your headphones or your PA speakers or whatever, at some point it's converting back to analog because you, fellow human being, are an analog device at least in the hearing department. So that's a little rundown of our condensed history of recording. We've gone from mechanical sound recording to uh, wire and tape and now to digital. And I already talked about the purposes for recording. Go back and listen to episode 87, why we record. Just if you need some reminders, you know, maybe you need something to blow your money on and you want to buy some recording gear. As I, I don't think I'm going to get into that so much in this episode, but as we, if I do, and I think I probably will do at least one more episode kind of on this same topic, um, I, I will perhaps toss out a little bit of advice about how you might want to, the type of thing you might want to buy and that kind of thing, because Lord knows I've had it all, all, everything on the low end of the spectrum I've had. So I've, I've found the things that worked and the things that didn't work and the limitations and the advantages of some and so on. Okay, so let's just in a sort of overview sort of way talk about recording devices. We're not going back as far as the cylinder. But we will begin with tape because magnetic recording tape and tape recorders are still available. You can go to Goodwill and buy a cassette deck. And, you know, I don't know how many drugstores you might have to go to to find some blank cassettes, but if you have some blank cassettes, or you could just erase some cassettes, you could record with a cassette deck for, that you bought from, you know, from Goodwill for five bucks. So it's still out there. And, you know, if you scour eBay, the tape technology machines are dirt cheap because nobody wants them. Everybody's gone digital. So that might be a, you could get a bunch of really good tape based recording equipment for a 10th or less than what you would spend for the comparable digital stuff. Now, admittedly, you've got the limitations of tape. I mean, there's a reason everybody's gone digital. You know, you can, you can make crummy singers sound really good. And, you know, you can, you can play your solo and do it 10,000 times and just choose the first half of the first measure and then insert a note and alter the, you know, it's just like endless control that you have digitally, which you you had some of that with tape, but it was more difficult. 
But I'm just, I, I want to start with tape because the way all digital recording processes take place is based upon the way tape recording took place. The technology is different. When you record into a digital recorder, your, your waveform is turned into electrical signal, and then that is changed from analog to digital by an AD converter just like I'm doing right now on this podcast using this Euphoria UM2 AD converter. And then that's being piped digitally. Numbers are being pumped into this Mac. And then those numbers are being recorded. And all, only on playback will it turn back into analog audio. It just reverses the process, you might say. But the way you record, like if you sit down and look... I'm using Audacity, which is a free shareware-type deal um, audio recording software available for Windows and Macintosh, and I think even like the Raspberry Pi, maybe. But if you look at it, when you pull it up, it's a virtual tape deck. You know, I see forward and reverse, and record button, and play button, and pause button. Those are the same buttons that you would see on that JCPenney dual cassette deck, five bucks at Goodwill. It's the same, you know, the transport mechanism switches. Now you got a lot of additional things that the tape deck doesn't have. You have, you know, effects and tracks and tools and analyzation and, you know, all these different sort of things. But there's a recording level slider on there. Well, there's a recording level slider on the front of that JCPenney cassette deck. And it's got a couple of mic jacks and you could you can plug a mic into a cheap $5 cassette deck, slap you a blank tape in, hit record and run the levels up and down until you're getting a decent level and record and have really good sound. It's it's quite amazing and it never goes from analog to digital and back. It's just analog all the way. Not going to get into all about um, magnetic tape recording because if you want to get into that, you got to kind of become seriously into it. You got to learn about, you know, tape uh, recording head demagnet demagnetization procedures, which is almost like uh, some sort of Zen ritual. Where, I mean, if you ever watch a guy demagnetize the heads in a studio, a tape studio, it's almost like some sort of religious ritual. <laughs> I'm not even going to explain how it's done, but it's very cool to watch. And I've done it on my own home tape recorders. I, I used to have a four-track Tascam, four-track multi-track uh, tape recorder. And I, so I used to do that uh, similarly with that. But what you're doing is mimicking the same things that people used to do with tape. You know, when you use cut and paste, well, you literally cut the tape in the tape world. You had an editing block and you'd, you would pause the tape and pull the tape out and put it in the editing block and take the razor blade and cut the tape, you know, and then you would move it to your next mark and cut it and then splice it back together, cutting and splicing. You'd put a little piece of scotch tape on there, basically, to put the two pieces together. And if you cut it correctly, you could do the same sort of detailed editing that is done now digitally. But I, I will flat out tell you, it's a whole lot easier to do it digitally because they have the undo button. Oh, crap, you cut it in the wrong place. Well, if you cut the analog magnetic tape in the wrong place... You just ruined it. You ain't going to go back and fix it. But with digital, you can go, oops, and undo, you know. <clears throat> so there are advantages. I mean, that's why we're doing digital. There are a lot of advantages to it. But I'm just saying, tape is still a real thing, and you can do it. And you can, if you like tinkering around with old stuff, you can do it very cheaply. And you can learn a lot of things that when you move into the digital world, you see and you understand, oh, 
That's what a track is. That's what editing is, a cut, you know, things like that. Okay. When speaking of tape, the one of the first terms that you need to know is the term track. Track, the word track and its use regarding recording technology came about with tape. At first, the tape streamed by an, a monophonic one single channel of audio was, let's say, encoded onto the tape. So mono. Mono is one channel of audio. It's as if you have one ear. But you don't. You have two ears. Most people do have two functioning ears. So what you really, what you normally hear is stereo. So very quickly, tape recorder technology went from mono to stereo. And what they did was divided the tape into two tracks. It was one piece of tape streaming by, but it basically had two lanes. It's like you get out on your highway and it's a two-lane highway. Well, they would have two lanes on the tape. One would be the left channel and one would be the right channel for playing to your left ear and to your right ear. So it was two lanes. Most tape, like a, a typical cassette tape, like if you just bought a little cassette tape somewhere and it was stereo, was actually four tracks. It was one-eighth inch wide tape with four tracks on it. And that was because lane one and three were left and right going in one direction. And when you flipped the tape over and went the other way, two and four were the left and right channels. And there's a little gap in between the tracks so that the tracks don't overlap and interfere with each other. But it was very important with tape to have your heads aligned correctly because you wouldn't want the left track bleeding over into the right track. And certainly if it was playing in reverse when you flip the tape over and play it backwards. But the way a lot of these four track, like the Tascam four track recorder that I had, used standard cassettes, but it used all four tracks going in the same direction. So you had four tracks that you could mix later. So it was used the exact same format, but it, the tape always traveled in the same direction. There was only four. There was no flip the tape over with four track tape. You had channel one, two, three, and four. And you could record something on one and be listening to it and record something on two. And then you could record something on three while you're listening to one and two. And then you could even do a little trick called bouncing and you could mix tracks one, two, and three and record them over onto track four and then erase one through three and keep piling on more tracks. That was called bouncing or ping-ponging. You can do an awful lot with a little four-track recorder and I'll bet you anything you could buy a you know, a used Tascam four-track cassette, multi-track, you know, with effects and all that stuff. You could probably buy one of them on eBay for under 50 bucks. I'm just guessing, you know. Uh, you might, I don't think they still make them new. They're pretty much all going to digital now. That's what a track is. A track is a stripe on a magnetic track, on a magnetic tape, excuse me. In the digital world, it's very easy with something like Audacity or even GarageBand or, you know, you get up into the, some of the higher, higher end um, sound, you know, digital audio workstation recorder type software. There is really practically no limit to the number of tracks. I suppose you're just limited by your memory and your you know, your hard disk space and things like that. But you can have one track or two or 10 or 15 or 50. It doesn't matter. You can just keep laying down new tracks. Where on tape, you were limited. There were, you know, the machine was only built to do four tracks or eight or 16 or, you know, I guess you could even go, I'm trying to think, they, they had quarter inch, they had half inch, one inch, two inch tape. 
we did an album that that Mama Don't Allow album in 1984 was done on oh god I think it was done on eight tracks on one inch tape if I'm not mistaken. But they they went as high as two inches, maybe even more. I don't know. There may have been wider tapes, but you know that defined how many lanes were on the road. Today with digital, you don't have that problem. You can just put as many tracks as you want to, pretty much. But but a track in the digital world refers to, you might say, a channel of audio that has been recorded. And as you re-record, let's say you're adding a second track. Let's say you want to play the guitar and you record that on track one, you know, digitally. And then you rewind the tape, go back to the beginning of the file, and get the computer to play back track one through your headphones while you record track two. You're now multi-tracking. You're laying down these tracks at, at a different time, but you're playing them together and you're going to play them back at the same time. So that is multi-tracking. Multi-tracking is, you know, the recording of a bunch of different individual tracks, perhaps all at once, because you could have a room full of musicians and every musician is, his mic is going to a separate track. You could have eight people in a room and eight microphones and record eight tracks simultaneously. But you could also have a guy come in the following Tuesday and record another track. And then you could have somebody come back in and re-sing, you know, their baritone part and record another track. And in fact, you know, somebody could play 150 versions of their mandolin break and you pick out the best one and, well, that's the track we keep and we throw all the rest of them away. So that is tracking. And it's gotten a little confusing because people tend to think of a track as a finished song because we think of a, you know, a record album. Well, it's track, you know, the first track is, you know, Sitting on Top of the World, and the second track is Tattooed Lady. So, it, you know, track is used to refer to songs. You say, hey, we dropped a new track last week, you know. Well, you're really getting a new song, a new finished final recording, but I'm just saying a track, the word track can refer to the final song, like you go on Spotify and play track three. Or... In the recording world, it refers to one discrete recorded channel with something on it. It could be a single instrument. It could be, you know, a choir of, you know, 15 dogs howling into one microphone and recorded on a single channel. That would be one track. It would be the, you know, the dog pack track. So it doesn't really matter what you put on the track. It's the fact that that track can be manipulated separately from the other tracks. Okay, so that's tracks. Tracks are all the little pieces and parts either done simultaneously through multi-track recording or done individually one track at a time or a couple of tracks at a time. Then comes the process of mix down. See, now you've got all these tracks. And let's, let's look at it on a very simple way. Let's say you had a little home four-track digital recorder that you bought off of Amazon. And it'll record four different tracks. And you record some guitar, and then you play some banjo over it, and then you sing. Now you got three tracks. And you want to mix these tracks together to make a final two-track stereo mix, you know? which is the standard, all pretty much all commercial music is two-track stereo, left-right, stereo mix. That's the standard. So you want to create that out of your three tracks. Well, that process is called the mix-down. So you're going you're gonna to play it, and you're going to adjust the volume. I'll turn the guitar up a little bit, and the vocal down, and, a, and then you can also add effects after the fact. And let me let me just quickly talk about effects. Effects are things like compression, echo, reverb, uh, phasing. There's a whole bunch of effects. 
not that many used in bluegrass because it's not a real, you know, like high tech electronic, you know, dance beat type of music. But they are used, you know, a little bit of um, reverb added to a vocal track can make it sound better sometimes. A little compression on the bass, even an effect like EQ, like boosting certain frequency ranges, trying to make the mid range a little more prominent or reduce the the sibilance, the sound of the S's on the vocal tracks. You can cut down the little narrow frequency band and, and cut out some of that sound, sound. That's, you know, reducing sibilance. That is an effect. EQ is an effect. Compression is an effect. Um, echo, reverb, you know, all these different vocal plates and all these different effects and stuff. Here's what I want you to know about effects. Effects can be put in between the microphone and the recorder. So you could have your microphone, let's say, go into a reverb unit and add echo and reverb to the vocal and then send that to the recorder. From that point forward, you will never be able to take that reverb out because it's part of the original captured sound. You're stuck with it. However, if you just record the instrument or voice, what's known as dry instead of wet, wet would be with the effect in it. If you record it dry, just capture just the audio. Don't do anything to it. Don't mess with the tone, the EQ. Don't, don't compress it. Don't add echo. Nothing. If you capture that, you can then later on mix down add effects in and play around with them. You can try this reverb and that reverb and a little less and a little more of that. So that is the difference between recording dry and recording wet. Wet means you're doing effects to it as you record it, which you will never be able to remove. Dry means you're just capturing the, the barest, most stark, raw audio that you can then tinker with after the fact during mixdown. That's the preferred method. But in live performance, that is not the preferred method. If you want a little echo, a little reverb on your harmony singers, well, you just put it right in because it's live, baby. I mean, we're playing. We want to hear it right now, you know. So that's why a lot of times live recordings don't make very good commercial recordings because the way you mix live is somewhat different than the way you might mix a commercial product, you might say. Okay, so that's mixed now. You're taking all those various tracks, and it could just be one track, and your mix down simply consists of maybe doing a little EQ to it or setting the volumes or doing a little editing like, Exactly when does it, do I want this to start and stop or maybe a little fade out at the end? You know, a nice gentle two-second fade out of that final note. That could be all there is to the mix-down process. Then, let's presume you're, you're digital at this point. That mix-down is creating a file, some sort of audio file. Well, then there's another step. That audio file, let's say you're mixing down and you're creating an AIFF file or an MPEG file or something. A WAV file, if you're a Windows type. Um, what you have is a final stereo mix. And by the way, when you're mixing those three tracks, you know, I was using that as an example, you might put the guitar and pan it dead center and have the mandolin you know, panned a little bit to the left and the banjo a little to the right or something. That's panning and that affects the volume levels on those two stereo channels during mixdown. Okay, so you got your final file and you play it back over some speakers and listen to it on headphones and you go, wow, that sounds really good. You got your, your finished product. But it's not finished to the stage where you could start pressing them on records or CDs or even distributing them digitally. 
Because let's say in the process of, I'm going to use, I'm going to jump way ahead. And this may be way beyond what you want to do right now. You may just want to make some little guitar rhythm tracks to practice old Joe Clark with. You don't have to do all this for that. I mean, if, if you got the tape or the file and you can play it back and hear it, you've pretty much got what you need. Um, but if you were going to take it to the step where you're going to, you know, produce some sort of like a CD, you're going to make a CD for your band or a demo tape or an EP or something like that. There is another step to it called mastering. And that is you got song one and you got song two and song three and, you know, up through whatever, 12 songs. And they were all mixed on different days. You did, you did song two on Wednesday night and Thursday around lunchtime and you were hung over from going out jamming the night before and you, you did the mix down on, you know, song four. And then two weeks later, you re-recorded some junk and did six. And you got this collection of so-called finished song mixes, which you're, you're happy with the mixes, but you're playing them all individually. How do they sound when you put them all together? You know, is song two a little hotter, a little louder than one? Or song one is a really soft, pretty song. And then, blam, two is like this in-your-face, you know, bust-you-over-the-head type of song. Maybe we need to back down the volume of number two just a little so we don't whack them over the head when, you know, when they're playing the CD. Or maybe we need to pull up, you know. It's so mastering is sort of creating the whole album. It's taken all of these songs, not only just putting them in the order that you want them to be in, but making them in a kind of consistent uh, way so that it when played back when the whole album is played back the whole thing sounds like a great show like a great live show because imagine you went to a show and the first song you can barely hear them so you move up closer to the speakers and then the second song they're super loud and it's not just volume it's also tone and um you know they're Overall, there are a lot of things you can do to the audio file to make little subtle changes to kind of turn it into one big whole thing. And you've probably put on CDs that just sort of have this certain sound. You know, put on an old Flat and Scruggs thing or put on a Del McCurry from about 15 years ago. Listen to that CD and then put on one from last year. They're going to sound quite different. You know, if you mix, if you played song one from the first CD, followed by song two of the second, you're going to notice differences. The banjo sounds a lot different. The, the vocals sound different. The, the overall volume is different. But you won't notice that on that same CD. You'll, you'll, it seems really consistent. That is mastering. And at the end, the end result of mastering is to create the master, the thing you hand over to the duplicating or reproduction service or record pressing company to, okay, this is exactly it. And it has to be in the correct format with all the, you know, the correct encoding and, you know, it's got to be a gold master and blah, blah, blah. When you hand it over, this is what they're going to press or stamp or duplicate replicate or depending on how they do it um it's your last chance you know this is the thing you know are we going to have a two second gap between every song are we going to have a hidden track on there are we going to include the track titles in the digital data part you know, you know there's a whole bunch of things that have to go into creating the master and that's the last step of the mastering process you know demo recordings and home recordings and even sometimes home CDs that you're just going to pedal at gigs and stuff doesn't have to go to that stage, but pretty much all professional commercial releases will get that extra step of mastering of the album. So, all right, now let's see, let me look at my paper here. I've probably been talking too long already. Uh, let me just pull this over here. Oh, I want to tell you about um, 
Speaking of mastering, when in 1984, when when our band Cedar Hill made a, an album called Mama Don't Allow, that was recorded on analog tape. And as I understand it, I was told by the engineer that that was the same machine that Sweet Home Alabama was recorded on and that he bought that machine used when that studio was upgrading, I don't know, something like that. That just may be a bunch of baloney, but uh, that's what I was told anyway. It was the exact same machine, you know. So the album was recorded onto, I don't remember if it was eight or 16 tracks, I think eight, but uh, it's been a long time. That master tape was mixed down to a two-track quarter-inch recording tape. The songs were cut and spliced together to create one long tape that had side A of the record on it and another tape reel that had side B. The songs were put in order, and if you wanted two seconds of silence in it, you put two seconds of blank leader between them and you taped them together. Literally, this album was cut and taped together to create these tape reels, or it might have even just been one long reel with A and followed by B. I don't recall that. That's your two-track master. And incidentally, that album was edited, recorded, mixed, and edited by Ed Rowland, who, is, who was and maybe still is the lead singer of the band Collective Soul. And back in those days, he was just known as Ed E., and he is credited on the back of the album, Ed, in quotes, E. He was just known as Ed E. back in those days. <laughs> anyway, the tape was handed to us. Bob McIsaac and I hopped in the car and drove to Nashville with the tape coming from Stockbridge, Georgia. We took a day, booked all the stuff in advance. Um, might have been two days we were up there. And we hand-carried the master tape up to Nashville. And our first stop was at Masterphonics. It was a very well-known mastering studio in Nashville. I mean, you pull out some of your greatest Nashville, and not just Nashville, albums, and you'll see mastering by Masterphonics, Jim Lloyd. Well, Jim Lloyd mastered that record for us. And... You know, I barely knew what we were doing. I'd only been in the band a year, but I wanted to ride along and see what happened with this. So we go in, you know, the secretary greets us at the door and we got an appointment with Jim and blah, blah, blah. We go back there in his studio and we just sit quietly in the chair and watch him work. And he took that two track tape, put it on his tape playing machine, and he also had a cutter you know, a lathe, it was called, that would cut, I guess they were lacquer. He would basically put a blank record onto the lathe. And he played the tape through some, you know, some incredible speakers and audio analyzing equipment and EQs and all this stuff. And he played it and he's like, so what do you guys think of that? You know, and oh yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. You know, and we go through this mastering process where he's zipping around the tape and playing different things and and then he starts cutting the disc, the master disc. And we just sit there and watch it. And he's working and we're watching literally the needle cutting the record from that audio tape with his masterful controls. Got side one done, side A. And then he makes another one, side B. And packages them up very carefully and hands us our discs and out the door we go. We got our master tape back and we got our master phonics master, I guess platters you might call them. I don't, I don't know what, exactly what you call them. Then it was off to a very uh, crummy old part of downtown Nashville to take those um, masters and have them plated. So you handed them off to this other guy, and it looked like the kind of shop where you get your transmission fixed or something, you know, like they're, they're rewinding alternators or something. I mean, it was just a 
gravel parking lot. You went there and here's this guy. And inside there, they got all these tanks and vats and all this stuff. And basically what they did is you handed them over the, the lacquer disc and they made a metal copy of it, essentially, by, I don't know whether they copper plate it or put cold copper on it. I don't remember how they did it. But basically, they came away with a, an, with a plated impression of that original. Now, the original was still preserved. And the, you now had this, I think it was called the Mother, the Mother Disc. And then from the Mother, they, using that impression that was from the plated version, they, I guess somehow filled that with metal and made what are known as the stampers. So you went from the master tape to the lacquer to the mother to the stampers. And so when, when you know, after killing a few hours at a nearby bar, we go back and we pick up our, you know, all the stuff, the mother and the master and the, the stampers. And then we put the stampers in the car and took them back down to Marietta, Georgia and handed them over to Georgia Record Pressing. Here's our stampers. Start stamping. And, you know, they take blobs of hot vinyl and start stamping out records and sticking stickers on them. Say, Cedar Hill, Mama Don't Allow, Side A. That was how it was done back in the day. It's a whole lot easier today. You can, you can record in you know, garage band or audacity and do all this stuff for a whole lot less money and, uh, you know, slap your finished songs up on pay hip and, you know, have people digitally downloading them off iTunes or whatever. It's become a whole lot easier. And I, you know, there's probably a downside to that too, because the easier you make a technology, the more accessible it is for folks who probably ought not be on record in the first place. You know, it's just like any fool can make a record today or I shouldn't say that uh, any fool can make a, certainly make their own crummy CDs or put out tunes on, you know, digitally where, you know, let's say back in the day where there was a lot more time and effort invested in it, you know, you had to sort of rank to get on record, you might say, or fork out a lot of, a lot of dough. But anyway, that uh, will wrap it up for this episode. Just kind of a wandering uh, tale of some of the basics of recording. And in part two of this, I'm going to get down to specifics and talk about Exactly. I mean, you know, sometimes even mention the precise machine. Like, okay, so you want to do this? You might look at this little gizmo or that little gizmo, and here's how you could do it. And talk a little bit about, you know, recording apps and the actual software and things like that. Because maybe you really want to do something. Maybe you just want to. You you've got a little band together, and you need a demo. Even if the demo is just you know a couple of audio files up on your website, or you post them on your Facebook page, or whatever. That might be all you want to do right now to try to scare up some gigs. Or you might want to create, you know, a little product, something you can peddle and sell or use to promote your band or things like that. Or you might be a songwriter who wants to just be able to hand somebody the song and go, here it is, you know, here, check out the song I wrote. So there's a lot of reasons. Once again, go back to, what was it? Episode 87. Uh, why we why we record episode 87 i'm sure i talked about that there but in the you know in an upcoming episode i'm going to get down to a little more brass tacks about actually how to do it because there's a lot of things to consider just even some basic knowledge of proper recording levels uh, that is pretty pretty vital and that applies to i don't care what kind of machine i don't care what you use Getting your levels is pretty important. Talk about that in the future. Y'all have a wonderful week, and I apologize for not getting this episode out as timely as I have been. But uh, like I said, I got the mower fixed, and I had to get some serious mowing done. So y'all have a wonderful week. And uh, uh, I just want to say, I've been getting a few emails from some people 
you know, with just little basic questions and stuff. I'm going to be doing an episode here pretty soon answering some listener questions. So now is your fair warning. If you've got some oddball question that you think I might be able to answer that might also be helpful to other people, send me an email. Just go to bradleylaird.com. And right there at the top, it says contact. Click that, and it'll tell you how to email me. Uh, don't don't Facebook message me or Twitter message me. I don't get on those things very often. I go on them once a week, just you know, like to say, hey, I got a new podcast, and then I check out. I am not a Facebook dude, so email me, and uh, you know, just throw your question in. I'll I'll. I'll knock it out and attempt to answer your question. I don't care what it is. If you want to ask me about fiddle rosin, which don't ask me about fiddle rosin. I, I know what it is, and I have I have some. But, you know, if you got a question you think I could help you with, ask away because I'm going to do one or more listener question episodes. So now's your chance. Get that question in. And y'all take care. Appreciate the support over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And also enjoy the website, bradleylaird.com. And if you feel like buying any of my instructional materials, that helps the cause too. Y'all have a good week and I'll talk to you later. Stay.